If a Middle Earth elf lived today in Southern California, how would she celebrate and support the arts, music, and her community? What would Arwen do? Thursdays, 4 to 5 p.m. with me, Tani Tuduvio, on KCI 88.9 FM and streaming live at kci.org. Ellen Salalumin Amenti Alpha. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. And she sits on the advisory board of the State of California Office of Privacy Protection. And she's also a sheriff here in Orange County. You may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel. And she even had her own PBS special a couple of years ago called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Good evening, Mari. Oh, hi, Lloyd. You know, tonight is my very favorite guest. This is the third time that she's been on. And we have great guests, but I think she's at the top. She is, in my view, the foremost leader in privacy. She is a, a wonderful mentor for me. I have been friends with her and known her for 11 years now since I was a victim of identity theft and I'm just really always so thrilled to have her. Let me tell you a little bit about her. You may have actually, if you listen to our podcasts and our our different shows, you may have heard her before, but she always has something new to say. But let me introduce you if you haven't heard her. Beth Givens is the founder and director of the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse, which is a nonprofit advocacy, research, and consumer education program in San Diego, California. The PRC was established in 1992 with funding from the California Public Utilities Commission's Telecommunications Educational Trust. It is an independent program of the Utility Consumers Action Network, which is a nonprofit organization that advocates for consumers' interests regarding telecommunications, energy, and the Internet. Now, Beth speaks frequently and conducts workshops on the issues of privacy. We've had some fun doing our own dog and pony shows together, which was always fun with her. She's participated in many media interviews, including the NewsHour with Jim Lehrer, On PBS, CBS Evening News, CNN, 60 Minutes, 48 Hours, Good Morning America, Court TV, uh, NBC Evening News, CBS Weekend News, and, oh, myriad major daily newspapers. She's testified on privacy public policy concerns before the U.S. Senate, the California Legislature, the California Public Utilities Commission, the Federal Trade Commission, the Telecommunications and Information Administration, and the U.S. Controller of the Currency. And actually, I think the Social Security Administration, too, because I think she was with me and she forgot to put that down. In addition, Beth has been a member of several task forces examining privacy-related public policy issues, which include the California Office of Privacy Protection Advisory Committee, and I'm thrilled to get to see her when we do those uh, committee meetings. Also, Trustee Wireless Privacy Committee, the Justice Management Institution's Electronic Court Records Advisory Committee, that's a mouthful, the Task Force on Criminal Records Identity Theft, the California Legislature's Joint Task Force on Personal Information and Privacy, the California Judicial Council Subcommittee on Privacy and Access, the Internet Policy Committee of the San Diego Public Library, and the Mayor of San Diego's City of the Future Task Force. She also has served on the U.S. Census Advisory Committee. She's given tons of speeches that you can see at privacyrights.org. She's received awards, and she's also contributed to several books, including the World Book and the Encyclopedia of Crime and Punishment. She is a wonderful co-author of the Privacy Rights Handbook, uh, How to Control 
control your personal information. And she's also a wonderful co-author with me. We had a fun time doing our little booklet, Privacy Piracy, and that's where we got the name of this show. She is also the co-author and editor of all of these wonderful Privacy Rights Clearinghouse fact sheets, which, again, you can find at privacyrights.org. I could go on forever to talk about you, Beth, but I think we better get started. You there? Yes. Uh, thank you, Mari, very much. Well, thank you for all that you do, because you, you're you our uh, dear Abby of privacy, and you're also our fearless leader. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> okay, so we have talked before about the work of the PRC, but I I want you to tell people, because you're doing so many wonderful things, why don't you get us started about how you got started? Yeah. Back in the early 90s, there was a grant program that was a uniquely California type of grant program. And in fact, uh, an awful lot of community groups have gotten started because of these kinds of grant programs that that seem to happen only in California because of our our very progressive uh, consumer protection environment here. But we we looked at what needed to be done back in the early 90s. It wasn't my idea, I'll admit that, but one of the people sitting around the table, a young attorney uh, in the pub, doing public interest work said, and this was in 1991, he said, I think privacy is going to be the next big consumer issue. Now, that was awfully early to, to be so um, prescient, but uh, he was absolutely right. In 1992, we applied for funding from this particular uh, pot of money, and, and we were funded to start the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse. And of course, that was pre internet. So in those days, all we had were paper guides. We created a series of guides that we call fact sheets. And at that time, we only had about a half dozen of them. We now have more than 50 of them. And then in 1996, uh, that's just when the Internet was revving up. We we put all of our guides uh, on our Internet website. And, of course, now that's the main way that people get our information. And I mentioned we have more than 50 guides on um, how to protect your information, each on a different topic. So we cover uh, some of the early guides were on, like, junk mail, how to get rid of junk mail, telemarketing sales calls, your credit report and why it's important to uh, uh, to order it once a year. And then uh, we were the first organization in the country, I think it's fair to say, that worked on the issue of identity theft. We started working with victims in uh, 93 and 94, and, of course, you came uh, along in 96. I right. Um, and and contacted us, I think, based on what we had on our website. Exactly. You know, Beth, when I was the victim of identity theft and I had no idea what was really happening to me, and because I couldn't sleep at night, one of those post-traumatic stress disorder, you yeah. can't sleep. Of course, I didn't lose weight, but I did. I couldn't <laughs> sleep. And I was searching and searching, and who did I come upon but the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse? And that was the only place at that time, Beth, that had anything really to speak, so to speak, on identity theft. And, and remember, I, I saw your fact sheets, and right. I called you, and I was following, and I said, gee, Beth, some of these things aren't working. You go, oh, well, hey, tell us. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, and you uh, actually helped us uh, improve our guides quite a bit. Um, three years later, in 1999, the Federal Trade Commission came along with their own identity theft clearinghouse. But until that time, just this, you know, this small organization of, what, two, three people was the only source for identity theft information. Now, of course, the Federal Trade Commission serves, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands uh, every year in identity theft. And there's also the Identity Theft Resource Center, plus your work, Mari. But at that time, it was just us and then, you know, followed by uh, you and the Identity Theft Resource Center and then the Federal Trade Commission. You are, yeah, you were definitely the pioneer. And like I said, I call you my fearless leader. There's (laughs) no question about that. Yeah, so then... So let's talk about some of the topics that you have. I know you have grown tremendously, and I love that website. And by the way, it's it's so easy to navigate. Every time I get a chance, I tell people, go to the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse because it has everything on everything that you want to know about privacy. So let's talk about some of the things that you already have on there. Yeah, well, I mentioned there are 50 guides. They add up to more than 500 pages of of information on how to protect your privacy. We've developed them in question and answer format, like an FAQ or frequently asked questions. So each of them, you know, starts off with a table of contents of 
of all of the uh, questions that are answered by that fact sheet. And uh, as I said, the, originally we started off with kind of some basic issues, how to get rid of junk mail, how to get rid of telemarketing sales calls, how to order your credit report, uh, cordless and cellular telephones, what you need to know about wireless communications, uh, even wiretapping. We have a guide on wiretapping. Um, but also government, government records and privacy. That, that actually is one of our hotter topics in, in these days because um, there are the commercial uh, private uh, sector companies that sort of vacuum up all of this uh, public record information and then turn around and sell it. Uh, it's very upsetting to people to realize that they're forced to give their personal information to a government agency. Uh, they have no choice. And then, and then a, a, a private sector company siphons it up, turns around and sells it, and there's really nothing they can do about it. But maybe we can get into that subject a little later. Exactly. I was just going to say we're doing an overview, but there, that's one of the juicy ones that we yeah. definitely need to talk about. Right? But we also have guides on a, a big one for us, um, employment background checks. I think we're the only source of guides for job applicants. And now I think it's well over 80%. It might even be 90% now of employers who are doing background checks. And, of course, you don't want to be disadvantaged. What if there's a mistake in your background check? What if you have a wrongful criminal record. Maybe the same John Smith, uh, the same name John Smith is associated with a criminal record and that ends up in your background check. So that's a big problem. We can also get into that a little bit too. Yes, that's a huge problem. Right, right. but we also, let's see, what else do we have guides on? Um, well, we, I have a list of all yours that we can get <laughs> back to because there are just so many, but I want to say something about those guides. Yeah. That the, what I really admire about those guides is that, you know, a lot of those were written in 1996, but you continually update with those with new laws and new information that you find out not only from victims of these problems, but also from other people that, you know, support you. So I, I do honor you for just making sure that all of this stuff is up to date so that any consumer can find what they need, and if they can't and they're having a problem, they can contact you as well that's at the right. PRC. So yeah. that's really important that well, people and, and know. Well, and, you know, the, that is so important to us. In fact, many of the updates that we make, uh, we make because somebody calls us and says, hey, did you know such and such has changed or there's now a new address for the Direct Marketing Association? And, right. And uh, that's... Uh, that's really a main way that we keep things up to date. So th thanks to people out there who kind of are, you know, we're all in it together. Um, one thing, I have a very strong rule about everything that's on our website. It must be dated. I used to be a librarian, and I tell you, that's <laughs> one of the things that's just hammered into us. You know, every document needs to have a date, and if it's been updated, it needs to have both the original date and the update date. So you'll see that on our on our publication. So, if, you know, let's just say something hasn't been updated for a while and you really want to rely on it, uh, you can contact us and we'll, we'll do some research and see if there's anything new or at least you know that you need to do some more looking. Exactly. No, it's wonderful. Let's go back a little bit because you, you had talked about the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse having mission. Let's talk about the two-part mission that you have. Right. Well, one we've been talking about is consumer education, and that, of course, is our guides, but it's also our, our what I call our hotline service. People can call us and they can email us with specific questions. Um, by the way, we, we have a staff of just 1.5. It's myself. <laughs> and, and your cat. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then a half-timer. So uh, we do the best we can with a small staff. But, uh, well, let me put in a plug here, even though we're nonprofit, and you're a nonprofit, so right. I can do that, that you are a wonderful place to donate. I donate each year. I, yeah. I really strongly support what you do. And anyone who's listening, if you just go to that website and see the wealth of information, you might want to consider making a tax-deductible donation because the work that they do is so important. If they had more help, they could even do more work. So right. That's, well, thank that's you my so little... much. <laughs> okay. That's great. But uh, anyway, I think, and then our second hat, we, we wear two hats. One's the education hat and the other is advocacy. We actually have a lobbyist, a part-time lobbyist, and I know that to some people that's not a nice word, but we call ours a, a white hat lobbyist. <laughs> the good guy lobbyist uh, works for, for the people, works for consumers uh, up in Sacramento. And of course, um, California is on the leading edge uh, in public policy and consumer protection. And, uh, you know, I think it's it just happened that we we're, that we started here in California. I, I suppose I could have been living anywhere, but uh, the California legislature has always, I think for the past 30, almost 40 years, been at, at the leading edge in terms of consumer protection. And laws that are passed here become uh, laws in other states and, and in Congress. 
for example, uh, our security freeze law, our credit freeze law. Right. That has since been picked up by, uh, I think, 35 other states, and there's even a bill in Congress. And security breach. And the security breach, absolutely. That, that was started by... Uh, 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 San Diego's uh, state senator, Steve Peace, and that also has spread nationwide. And um, so anyway, California, you know, it's it's great to be working in California because a lot of your work can then extend to other states just based on the fact that, that California is such a trendsetter. And we, yeah, we really set the standard. We've talked about that many times on the show. And then, of course, when when um, Robert Ellis Smith was on, he was congratulating our state for being number one in yeah. privacy for so many years. So, yeah. And a lot of that is due to you and our Office of Privacy Protection. But I would say you, because you were in really instituted out there and pioneering even before our Office of Privacy Protection. So I think um, I think you have a lot of, of good things that you've done that have really led the way. Well, thank you. Although I, I will say um, the California legislature, uh, in the starting in the early 70s, um, led the way. But also there was, and this is very historic, there was a, a oh, what was it, an initiative, a, a ballot initiative that established... Um, uh, privacy as a component of the California Constitution. I was just going to say that, that we are one of the few states that actually has privacy in our Constitution, a right to privacy. Yeah, and the big difference, you know, uh, generally constitutions cover the relationship between people and their government. Um, but what is unique about California's uh, constitutional right to privacy is that it also covers the relationship between people and private sector companies. Many people don't know that. Right. And that's, you know, there, I think there are about a dozen, 10, 11 states that, that do have the word privacy in their state constitution, but California's is the strongest and the most unique because of uh, the, the combined sort of public sector, private sector uh, coverage that, that our right to privacy has. And we don't have it in our, our national constitution. No, we don't. And so that, that again, probably is, is a good reason why there is a focus on that in our legislature. So you're right. It's, it's an important issue. Yeah. So let's get into some of these nitty-gritty things, because we only have an hour, and I know, Beth, you and I could probably talk all day. So let's, right. let's talk about one of the very big issues of our day here, which is the security breaches. And you have, and I just want people to know that on the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse website, privacyrights.org, you can find the chronology of breaches from February of 2005 through almost today. It's usually right. almost exactly updated. It tells you, because Beth wants everybody to know when it was updated, so it tells you when it was updated. And so let's get started, Beth, and you talk about what kinds of things you've, um, you've done in terms of what you've learned about security breaches and the chronology. I'm going to just let you go. Well, many people may not know what, what we're saying when we talk about security breaches, but um, we, there's, a lot of, there, there's a lot of news about breaches. Uh, it might be a hacking incident. It might be uh, a company that's uh, throwing documents into the trash containing credit card numbers uh, without shredding them. Um, it might be that there's a dishonest employee who walks out the door with... Uh, uh, the employee list containing social security numbers. Uh, there, there might be a, a th- you know a memory stick, a thumb drive. Those little thumb drives that now can hold up to what four gigabytes of yes, data. Yes, amazing. Uh, and you can lose those things. You know, people are carrying around in their pockets or purses um, entire databases, and those things are so easy to lose. Those are all the, the different kinds of security breaches. And then, of course, we've heard about all oh, those laptops that have the been laptops, stolen or lost. Oh that's, that's that's the biggest. That is the biggest. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, the reason it's a security breach at all is that the data hasn't been encrypted. If it were encrypted, it wouldn't be such a big deal. Right. And so let's kind of review what, what we know about the law, because California has set the standard. But at least in California, if you have a security breach of electronic information, meaning that it could have, I'm sorry, of computerized right. information, not electronic, it was electronic at one time, mm-hmm. um, that if it is not encrypted, you have a duty to disclose to any yeah. potential person. And let's be specific. It, it's it's if, if your name and address were exposed, there would be there would not be a, du- a duty to notify right. the. But but if it were your name and your address, and um, social your, security exactly, number, exactly social security number, your driver's license number, and or account finan- num- financial account numbers, account numbers. yeah, uh huh. Yeah. Then you would have to disclose to the affected individuals that there was a breach, and then you you would um, tell them uh, some of their options. What well, one of the options, of course, is 
if the social security number has been breached, that means that if it got into the hands of an identity thief, they could try to open up credit accounts in your name. So you would want to put a fraud alert on your three credit reports, and you might also want to subscribe to credit monitoring services. And, and oftentimes these breached entities will pay for those subscriptions. Right. The, the unfortunate thing is that the credit monitoring, which I always want to mention on the show, that only deals with um, letting you know about what credit uh, applications have been applied mm-hmm. for. It does not necessarily include. It doesn't necessarily include utilities, except maybe a cell phone. Right. And it doesn't include if somebody is getting an apartment in your name necessarily. And it doesn't include if somebody's committed medical identity theft mm-hmm. or criminal identity theft or IRS fraud working in your name. There's so many other aspects that will not be covered by That's credit right. monitoring. So I always want to add that in because people think, oh, well, I'm safe. I have credit monitoring. Nothing can happen to me. Well, exactly. And also, you know, I I, I always cringe when I talk about it because really the, the three credit bureaus are are making money, uh, right. you know, in the billions of dollars because of essentially the fear of identity theft and, 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 and this great number of security breaches. And as you say, it's it's not an all-inclusive solution. And they get you coming and going. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Right. So so let's talk about what you learned from the chronology that you've put together, which is, I think it's the only, I always refer to it, even in my testimony, I go, go to the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse and look at the chronology yeah. of breaches. So, yes. Well, one thing is just the variety. Um, but one of the bigger categories of breaches is universities. Right. And, and, you know, you always, why universities over, say, ba- banks and other, other, and go- other government agencies? Um, but the university is really a, a more freewheeling environment. They have to be. Uh, they're very decentralized in terms of their um, uh, information technology, their computer systems, and they have to be accessible to students, to teachers, to, fac- to researchers, to staff, even to uh, uh, vendors. And um, so it's a wide open environment and really, I think, more vulnerable to security breaches than, say, uh, financial institutions, and, and uh, you see very few financial institutions listed. Right, um, right. And here we are, sitting on the campus of the University of California, Irvine. Yeah. I mean, we haven't heard about big breaches here, but we've heard about Berkeley. We've heard about um, UCLA. UCLA. Huge. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. you know, it could happen here. So, But, the, you know, the thing is, and, and this is a public policy issue, why does a university need the students' Social Security numbers? They all have them. Um, and, it's really and remember, you know, we have that law that passed in California that that disallows the university, okay. any any college or university, from using the uh, social security number as the ID number now. Exactly. And they, they also can't require you to carry it on a card that, right. you know, that's issued. I mean, that's great, but it still, uh, it still doesn't um, solve the problem you know, that the universities collect the SSNs anyway. It just can't be posted and they can't use it, but they still collect it. So it's in their computers, and and when there's a breach, uh, you know, the students and the faculty and the staff uh, have had their Social Security numbers exposed. Exactly. And because of that, they have to then go through these steps to try to prevent identity theft. And you would think that they could encrypt. I mean, I'm sitting here at the University of California, Irvine, and Lloyd and I did a really interesting show with at the uh, Cal IT department, which was so high-tech. I walked in Beth, you would have loved it. I don't know if you heard the show, but I walked in, and when I walked in, I had this little card on me, and Lloyd had one on him. We did a field interview. As soon as I walked in, this big screen with my picture showed up. I I thought to myself, Beth would die if she said I almost died. In other words, there was a a little RFID in there that I, yeah, that had that was connected to my picture. So when I walked in the room to meet with the professors and the students, the graduate students, all of a sudden this picture came up. It was a very weird feeling. That is amazing. So so you know what it feels like to be tracked. I definitely do. I, it was, the, you know, there were little readers all over the place, yeah. and I didn't know that my badge had an RFID in it, and that didn't surprise me that much, but it did surprise me that it linked to my picture when I walked in. Well, you know, <laughs> but, but they should have told you. Well, you know, they did that, afterward. <laughs> yeah, well, so there, there is actually a bill in the California state legislature that would require disclosure. I know, uh, and, that's and, Semidian, right? Yes, Semidian, exactly. <laughs> But you asked, you know, the, the other types of breaches. I mentioned universities, yes. um, but there are companies like, get this, H&R Block had a breach exposing social security numbers of, of people whose taxes they were doing. Um, IRS. I, yeah, they had their own breach. 
Uh, it's Social Security Blue, yeah, Administration. Blue Cross, Blue Shield, uh, Ernst & Young, you know, the, yes. the, <laughs> the supposedly the, the gold standard yes. of uh, what accounting information. Um, but it's a fascinating list. I'm just scrolling down. It, it actually, if, it, if you print it out, it prints out to almost 100 pages. I, I know. I printed it out when I did a program. Oh, no. I went, oh, my gosh, look at this. I just want to introduce you again because Lloyd's yelling at me that I have to introduce you oh, here you because bet. I know who you are, and I forget that no one else does. But we are speaking with the pioneer, the foremost authority, in my view, in this entire country, is Beth Givens, who's the director and founder of the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse at privacyrights.org. Are you happy now, Lloyd, that I introduced Beth? again okay <laughs> we will introduce beth several times more beth gibbons i'm sorry beth to interrupt. that's all right of course the, the the biggest breach one of the biggest is the u.s veterans administration uh, horrible. The, the veterans affairs uh yeah and you know that was what 20 almost 27 million uh and what a shame you serve your country uh you maybe you've used their medical services and and now you have to be worried about identity theft but and, and, a, and a, there, a lot of them their their medical records yes. were were seized as well and we've so, got lots of friends and family that were yeah. that were victims of that breach so it's kind of a double whammy i mean you just you know it's it's like a punch to the stomach really your your sensitive medical information and then on top of that your social security number and your date of birth and of course if a if a thief gets a hold of those two pieces of data the ssa and the date of birth, um, they can look fairly credible when they fill out a credit application. And unfortunately, those credit issuers are not looking for the anomalies that come up in fraudulent applications. I mean, they don't, they should be able to notice, but they apparently don't take the time to do it, that there's a different address. No, and that they absolutely should be held accountable, and yes, that's what's so frustrating for us. I know you and I have talked about this many times, that they absolutely should be held accountable. But, you know, what's really sad about the military and the Medicare and the Medicaid is that still the ID number is still yes. the Social Security number. And, you know, the, in the military 30 years ago, they had an alternate number as the ID number. So it's only in the last 30 years that they changed it to the Social Security yes, number. Yes, I know. And, you know, our, son, our grandson, and, you know, is in the military and the Air Force, and he wears his dog tag with the Social Security number. Oh, note. my goodness. But yeah. And I've also heard, and I think they've stopped doing this, but that they would stencil the Social Security number into your um, your uniforms and, like, your duffel bag. Uh-huh. Apparently they don't do that anymore, but I, I remember when we got a complaint from, a, I think, an Army um, an army enlisted person who said, "Hey, it's on my duffel bag. What am I going to do?" And you know what? They to get on base uh, to get to the commissary or anything, they yeah. have they have their social security number on the card to get on base. Oh yeah. So you know that is so ridiculous in this day and age. I can't believe it that really we haven't is. been able to change that. And Medicare. Medicare. I mean, every you know every senior citizen in their wallets, they're carrying a Medicare card. And I can't tell you how many complaints I get when I go out and give speeches where there are seniors, um, and, and they just say, what can I do? And yes. I say, you know, talk to your congressional representatives. Yes. In fact, um, here a San Diego representative, his bill didn't get anywhere, but um, uh, congressional or Congress member uh, Bob Filner introduced a bill to uh, remove it from the Medicare card. Um, you know, it's how about very, Diane Feinstein? How about her bill, her most recent bill with Social Security limitations? I, I don't know if that I don't think it's in there. I don't think it is. I think her bill is actually very simple, and it doesn't cover that. I think they know what they're going to encounter, and that is in this age of, of belt tightening, the agencies are going to say, do you know how many billions of dollars it's going to take? Yeah, but yeah. you know what? I think they can start from a here on forward. Yes. In other words, for every new enrollee in Medicare, give them a, num- a number other than the SSN. Right. It's better than nothing. And in 10, 15, 20 years, you know, the majority of people carrying these cards will not be carrying an SSN. Exactly. Exactly. Well, yeah. I mean, we should probably talk to Diane Feinstein about that because it just it makes no sense to me. And the same thing with the military. Yeah. If they were able to change it 30 years ago from an alternate number to the SSN, yep. they should be able to change it back. They could. They they should. And again, it should be maybe on a here forward basis. Um, and uh, you know, I, th- I think you're actually, getting pretty mellow in your old age, Beth. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I remember ten years ago when you said, "Hey, they need to yeah, do that." Yeah, I know. Now. <laughs> but you know, you get you get realistic. Um, and, and I think you know that the key word actually for change, uh, and I've learned this by working in the California legislature over the years. The key word is incremental. Yes, and you've taught me that. Yeah, and, and it's amazing how much it works. And you know, I've been fortunate and. and um, I guess uh, honored, you know, to be able to do this work for over 15 years now. But, you know, we start we started way back there, and little by little, year after year after year, we make, um, you know, collectively some pretty big changes. Right. 
No, no, absolutely. It's it started. It shocked me because I would get frustrated at first, and I remember you telling me, "Well, you get your foot in the door the first year, yeah. <laughs> and then you go back and you keep trying to, you know, improve it when you show things that aren't working." And you know, I mean, there's so many bills we have to do that with, whether it's the Fairnac or Credit Transactions Act or or whatever. It just it's just not working. Yeah. So let me go on this list, Beth, um, because I thought. You're, you have this sheet that's called uh, Privacy Today, a Review of Current Issues. Oh, yes, uh-huh. How about if I just do um, a quickie, like each one, there's there's 19 of them. Mm-hmm. How about if I go through and you just tell me the main issue for each one? Does Are you comfortable with that? Sure, that would be fine. Okay. Biometrics. <laughs> ah, that's biometrics. Well, we all have a bunch of biometrics there on our our persons, on our bodies, they are parts of us that are unique only to us, like a fingerprint, a palm print. Even the way you walk is a biometric. Um, the way you smell, uh, your irises, your, um, you know, the, the, the way that your, your iris is put together, the colors and the different lines, uh, those are all biometrics. And you might say, what, what, what is the privacy issue there? Oh. Well, there more and more, uh, I think we're going to see it in our lifetimes. Uh, let's just say you're going to check out of the uh, grocery, you're, you're shopping for groceries. Oh, that's big, you know, all over Chicagoland. Apparently so. Yes, I we don't a- have it here, but if you've signed up for their fingerprint um, service, what you do is you, you, they will read your fingerprint and they will create, essentially it's a unique string of, of zeros and ones, a right. big, big long number that represents your fingerprint numerically and then you um, then you uh, combine that with your credit card information and when you check out you just put your finger or your thumb into a reader and that's how you pay your bill and apparently people love it it's now, called pay by touch it, yes pay by yeah. touch and you know what i'm not you know i'm not going to condemn it but what the part that bothers me is let's just say that in addition to supermarkets, now libraries start using that same technology when yeah. you check out books. And then maybe the corner vending machine where you get your newspaper or uh, you get your, your can of, of, of soda starts using it as, as a quick way to, to extract money from an account. All of a sudden, we've got all these different data points where our biometrics are being captured. It, it, it's, I call it the, um, the, the boiling frog syndrome. Yes. You know, if you throw, it's, it's not my story, but I use it a lot. If you throw a, a live frog into um, a vat of boiling water, the frog will jump out immediately and save itself. But if you put it into a cold, cold water pot, and then heat it up ever so slowly. The frog, the frog won't notice it, and they'll, they'll eventually boil to death. We're kind of like those frogs. Yes. The water is getting warmer and warmer, <laughs> and we're not noticing these, you know, the encroachment upon our privacy. No, exactly. And and I think, you know, for the people who I was on a radio show with with the uh, president of marketing for Pay by Touch. Oh, <laughs> so my. it was real interesting. They were talking, and I was asking questions. I said, "Are there false negatives and false positives?" Yeah. So, in other words, if I go up to pay with my finger and it says, "No, I can't," you know, how embarrassing could that be? Yeah. You know, and and what, how are they going to store it? I mean, who can have access? Can can it be hacked? And they said, "Well." Anything can be hacked, uh-huh. you know. So it was it was interesting. I think there are a lot of privacy issues, but I think a lot of people, it's always this balance, Beth, right? You've talked about it many times, the balance between convenience versus privacy. Yes, uh-huh. And I think that's... Uh, yeah, it's something, and I think we're going to see more of it because people cannot remember their their twelve character passwords. You know, I have a yeah. mala, I have so many. I have to I have to write them down, and then I put them in a lock cabinet, and then I have to find them, and I can't remember which one is what. Well, and there's some wonderful applications. You can now buy a laptop that is keyed to your your thumbprint. There's a right. little, there's a little reader on it. I think that's a great idea. You can buy these memory sticks that actually are apparently keyed to a. a a biometric. So there's there's some wonderful uh, applications, but my and worry just the safeguards. Yeah, yeah. My worry is if if one vendor becomes you know the standard and uh, one you know technology um, becomes the leader, then all of those data points could be compiled. They can be put together into a big pot, and that's where profiling comes in. Exactly. We're speaking with Beth Givens, who's the director of the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse, and she is the founder of the privacy can I talk she is the founder of the privacy rights clearinghouse and the pioneer really not only in this state but across the country and she does media interviews all the time and we're so lucky that she is willing to talk to us 
Let's talk now a little bit about video surveillance. Let's mm-hmm. let's we're seeing that all the time at red lights and everywhere. Yeah. Right? And oh, we're sitting. Lloyd just pointed. We're sitting here, Beth, in the studio of Studio B, and there are uh, video cameras on us. Oh sure. <laughs> but, but we know it. At least it is transparent to us. We know it. Everybody knows it. And if we were to do something bad in here, it's our own fault. <laughs> you know, because we know it. But it is sitting here on us. Yeah. So what do you think? But when we're out in public places, generally we don't know it unless we look up. And look around and we know what these little cameras look like. Um, I remember years ago I was um, in a demonstration and we were in Balboa Park here in San Diego and uh, it was at a spot where when people gathered to pr- protest something they, they oftentimes gathered right around the, the fountain there and I looked up and there was a camera on the top of the building and but I looked around me and lo and behold there was a sign on a post and a very visible sign that says these these uh, this area is under surveillance by uh, video camera. So, you know, that's good, but, you know, the vast majority of video surveillance cameras are, are of course, not so transparent. Um, we aren't quite up to the, sta- the level of the, uh, the UK, Britain, but apparently Britain is the most uh, surveilled, in terms of video cameras, country in the world. Apparently, right. on an average day, if you're, say, in London, you can be picked up by, I, I guess it's at least 300 different video cameras. Wow. Yeah. And again, it's that transparency. I mean, where can you go? It, it reminds me of those old movies where even in your house, yeah. your, your TV is, is now seeing everything that you're doing. So is there any place that you can be private in your bathroom? Yeah. Well, yeah, remember the, 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 the novel written in 1948, which yeah. was 1984, George right. Orwell. Right. You know, that the character in that novel found a, a, a corner in his uh, apartment where he could sort of squeeze into the corner, and, and that was the only place he wasn't viewed. One of the and things, we all thought that that was so weird, but you know what? It's really, it's yeah. it could happen. What I'm really concerned about with video surveillance is if if it were to be combined with biometrics um, and and specifically facial recognition biometrics we the the we have a face print each of us each, and and that face print is like a is like a fingerprint it's unique to us and it can be converted into a very long string of numbers um, and there could be video surveillance in fact there is actually uh, that would be uh, connected to uh, facial recognition biometrics so that if you're out, let's say, in a protest, a public protest, um, you know, on on the town square, um, you know, you you could be identified. And actually, we have a constitutional right to not be identified when we're expressing, um, you know, our First Amendment rights. And we already know that the FBI has been tracking people. I mean, we we already know about these lists where people are tracked if they're uh, protesting. This has just happened recently. So uh, could you imagine with your face on there? With your face, yes. But, Beth, you know what scares me even more, and maybe this is the, the idea of novels, but, you know, now that I've learned uh, Adobe and I and I play with all my pictures and put a, a head on, mm-hmm. on a dinosaur or something, <laughs> um, and I did I did a picture for you once where I did something funny when, for your birthday or something. I put, remember, I put together something with Adobe. Anyway, what I fear is what if somebody actually plants your face in something? Now, That's right. Somebody who has some bad feelings about you or or maybe some governmental uh, entity that doesn't like the way mm-hmm. you're thinking. I mean, well, I think it's probably already been done. Um, and, you know, the the Photoshop and the Adobe, and right. it, it's so sophisticated now that anybody, you don't have to even be a professional, anybody can put together some pretty realistic uh, photo montages that um, are very hard to figure out in terms of uh, is it real or is it not? Exactly. And yeah, that that is. I'm very fearful of that because how do you prove it? Yeah, that's right. Well, yeah. you have to hire an expert who who will see that the image was manipulated. But apparently, that's getting harder and harder to do. Right, right. Okay, let's go. That kind of leads us to yeah. data profiling. Well, we've talked a little bit about it, but you know, every you know, every step of the way as we go through our daily lives, we're leaving like an electronic uh, trail of bread breadcrumbs, um, and more and more those electronic trails or those data points can be can be uh, pulled together into just one um, one box or basket so uh, let's just it, 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 this is somewhat science fiction at this point but the day could come where the, the books that you purchase at at the local bookstore could be uh, obtained uh, let's say somebody's interested in just what kind of person you are uh, could be collected along with the, the magazines that you subscribe to uh, the trips that you take the the, the types of credit um, transactions you you make with your credit card um, all those sorts of things right now thankfully 
though they can't all be put together, but let's just say you're involved in a in a lawsuit. Uh, an enterprising uh, an attorney could actually enter into discovery and pull together all kinds of information that has been collected because of the fact that you're engaged in transactions that are done electronically now. And we don't even know if all of those transactions are really correct in those databases. It might be somebody else. It could be, but also, yes, it could be. It, it also could be a case where, you know, it's like uh, a sin of omission yes. or, you know, an important thing that would be, would be left out that could exonerate you uh, or make, make you look like an entirely different profile. So d- data profiling, we're, we're not seeing, well, data, let's just look at an employment background check. That's a really good example of a exactly. data profile. And uh, we've heard of so many cases here at the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse where it's the wrong profile. Exactly. The wrong John Smith's criminal record is... Um, put into an employment screening record um, erroneously. And I've, I've, I've talked to people who haven't been able to find decent work for a long, long time because of that. Look at Ray Lorenzo, who's been on our show. Yes. I mean, he's a, he's a prime example yeah. of that. There are so many that, that have gone through this, and they have no idea. Or even the medical. I have a, a woman who contacted me that her medical record is all messed up. Yes. And that's, that's really causing her problems. Well, that's, that could get into a case of life and death, or at least, you know, your health. Um, yeah, that that's a terrible problem, and, and then try to prove uh, that you that there's a there's a mistake in your profile. You know, it's on you, the victim. The onus is on you to prove it, to to figure it out. You know, Beth, I know that you have said uh, you recommend bath- background checks, and I do too. Yeah. So it's like this double-edged sword. And it like is. you said, there's a very high percentage of large companies that are requiring background checks. And t- if I were hiring somebody new, I'd want to do it. And so, you know, wh- what do we do with this? This, well, we want to get the background check to make sure that they're not a criminal or they're... Well, we have a law in California, and I wish it would spread to every state of, of uh, you get a copy of that background check no matter what. Right. The federal law is much weaker, and it says you can get a copy if a negative decision has been made about you. My feeling is everybody needs to get a copy of that background check, and they, they should have a right to it. Thankfully, in California, we have that, um, but it doesn't extend nationwide. You know, and, and the law basically says federally that if you make a decision that is adversary to the person, in other words, you're taking some action that um, it, it, then you have to give it to them. You know, in other words, if you're if you're denying them employment, right. but but if you you know you could just say, hey, you you just didn't have a, a, a well-rounded background, yeah, and we took somebody else. We, no we one's going to tell else, you. Then you don't have to give it to them. It's a terrible uh, loophole. Yes, it so definitely. So thankfully, is. in California, we don't have that loophole. Um, but you know what? I, I think, I, w- I wish a study could be done. I have a feeling that a lot of employers in California are not complying with the law. Right. I just have that feeling because I've talked to people who've, um, who've I've talked to them or, you know, email communicated with them, and they've said, well, I've applied for 20 different jobs and I, I'm getting nowhere. And I'm asking them, did you, did you get a chance to get your background check? And they said, well, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And they authorized it. I mean, you have to authorize. You have to authorize it. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it is. I mean, just because the law is in effect doesn't mean that everybody's following it. That's right. And I think that's one of the big problems. And it could be the, the small print, too, it, it, because mm-hmm. the, the, there, there, there's a consent form that you can sign, and it also tells you, you know, check this box or, or if you would like a copy of the background check. I have a feeling people just don't read the fine print. Well, maybe we need to go back with a law that says it has to be at least 12 points. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, that's like, like you said, increments yes. uh-huh. <laughs> when you get the laws. Let's go to the issue of workplace monitoring. You know, mm-hmm. I was talking with an attorney the other day, and he told me that, you know, usually voicemail is kept private. He told me that Every voicemail that comes in gets transcribed and mm. sent to him in his email box. Oh How do you like goodness. that one? That's amazing. Well, that's a good example of the advances of technology because it's probably, it's not a human being making the transcription. It's probably a, a computer software program. And that could be wrong. Um, it I've, could be, sure. Yeah, I told him. I said, would you like me to leave a voicemail? He said, let me give you my cell phone. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, do you believe that? they? At least oh. they gave him notice. Yeah. Well, and they don't have to give him notice. Um, uh, workplace privacy is what we always say is you check your privacy at the door when you walk in every morning. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a terrible situation and, and um, very, very difficult to legislate. We've tried uh, just getting a simple 
law in California that says if there's monitoring in the workplace, the employer must notify the employee. Now, doesn't that sound like a very fair and reasonable law? Simple. It's been uh, vetoed three times. Now, I can understand if someone is being investigated for a crime that if you have law enforcement involved and they ask you not to notify them, Mm -hmm. that would seem to me as a reasonable exception. It is, and these bills have always had those exceptions. Right, right. So I don't understand. I don't understand it either, but what happens is that the uh, large employers go to the legislature, they send their lobbyists, and they say they say how expensive it would be. I think that's really baloney, but they say... Expensive? You could do it with an email. Yeah, it's expensive to, to, to us, and when we, we want this to be vetoed, and makes it through the legislature, but then it's vetoed by the governor. Uh, it's, it's I ad- think there are only two states in the nation where employers have to give notice to employees about the fact that there's monitoring. They don't even have to say, you know, there, there, there's a, um, a video surveillance camera... Uh, in the hallway between room A and room B. They don't have to, to be specific. They just say, we monitor. That's all they have to do. But they can't monitor in a bathroom. No, they can't. Or, or a shower, a, yeah. yeah. Or no. a change room, a locker room. Right. You yeah. do have a reasonable expectation, uh, you know, when you're going to the bathroom. Yeah, so. thankfully. <laughs> Who knows how long that'll last, you yeah. know? I mean, thinking of somebody having a gun or something. But Well, believe it or not, there was a case where, and it was right here in California, I believe, where the... Um, company installed two-way mirrors in the bathroom. Yes. Uh, because of they, they had heard that there was uh, drug trade going on in the bathroom. And, and so, you know, even in the bathroom, people didn't have privacy in that situation. You would laugh at this. I recently did a, a program on privacy and mediation at a mediation conference, and they put me in this beautiful room. It, it was um, one of the colleges, and it was very high-tech, and there was a mirror in the room. And after I did my program, I went around. They were showing me around, and that mirror was double sided Oh, for heaven's sake. <laughs> I mean, I didn't do anything that I'd be embarrassed about, but, you know, I mean, I just I kind of went, you put someone who's here to talk about privacy and mediation in a room, and you don't tell them? I mean, yeah. it was so ironic. Yeah, that really I mean, these, it's it's crazy. It's like the time, Beth, you may remember this. Do you remember the time that we went to that privacy conference and we had this wonderful room and you and I were sharing a room and you said, how did we get this great room? And it's because when I checked in, somebody was in it and I walked in on them. Oh, yeah. Do you remember that? And then I called down and I said, how could you do this? We're here for a privacy conference and you put me, you gave me a key to a room that people are in and I walked in on their privacy. Oh. And then you came a few hours later and you go, oh my God, how did we get this room for like $95 oh, yeah. and do you remember that? And it I was said, a suite. <laughs> it was a suite. You said, boy, they sure have cheap prices here. I said, no, this is what happened. It was so funny. I mean, they almost died but when I told them. I said, how could you give me a key to a room that somebody's already in there? Talk about me violating somebody's privacy. It was hysterical. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about information broker industry. Oh my God, this yeah, is such this a, is a big, big one. We could spend a, a whole hour on this one alone. <laughs> well, you, unique to the United States, um, we have, we're basically an open government record state or a, a public records nation. And uh, over the years, a, an industry has grown up around the collection of government records containing personal information. And uh, companies like ChoicePoint and LexisNexis. Axiom. A- and Axiom, yes. Those are the big three. But what they do is they go to all the counties around the country and they compile court records. They compile professional license information, business license information, um, they get driver's license. Driver's you? license, that's right. In some states where it's not against the law, right. you know, even voter records. Thankfully, in California, we have a, we have a lot of protection uh, in the area of driver's license and voter records. But right. they pull it all together, and, um, and you know, pu- putting it together in one place makes it a very, very powerful profile. And they sell it. Now, the, the main companies will tell you, oh, we only sell to those who have a legitimate business reason, like employment screeners or um, attorneys or even the media they consider to be uh, legit. But like uh, another category would be debt collectors. Another would be private investigators and skip tracers. But there are companies um, like, and I'll, I'll give a name, um, and of course I'm just forgetting it right now. It'll come back to me in a second. But there are companies you can go on the Internet and they'll sell to anyone, no questions asked. Oh, I've seen plenty of those. Yeah. I almost hate for you to even mention them. Yeah, I won't, anyway. I won't mention them. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's good that it's slipped your mind. <laughs> yes, it probably is good. But, you know, if you're a victim of stalking or domestic violence or for whatever reason you're very concerned 
that people don't know where you live. A cop. A, a cop, judge. A school teacher. Right. Um, you know, you can be found. Yes. That easily. In, you know, 1995. It, even actually, you know, 995. Exactly. And, and remember what happened in Amy Boyer's case. Mm-hmm. That you know somebody wanted to find her, and then they bought it. They bought her information yes. and her social security number, and found out where she worked. And then this young man went and killed her. Yeah, uh, you know, so, a very, I mean, very disturbed person who happened to have a gun, and uh, he was obsessed about her, and she wasn't paying attention to him, and so he got even. And you know, and she basically is dead because of uh, uh, information. Docu search. Docu Yeah, it was docu search. Yeah. yeah, that was New Hampshire. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, and we still haven't gotten the kind of law that we need you know I mean we've talked about this before that we really need to have some oversight for these data brokers like we do for the Fair Credit Reporting Act it's an unregulated industry people in other countries are amazed and astounded and aghast as to the fact that we have this robust information industry that buys and sells personal information and that the individuals have really there's nothing they can do about it yes now we can go to choicepoint.com and we can get our public records for free once a year and Mm -hmm. we can get our um, insurance uh, history for free and Mm -hmm. and our work history but we really need to have if we've got these big three we really need to be able to use them in the way that we use the big three credit bureaus yes uh don't you think I mean how are we doing there is some legislation right now that's that's somewhat of a oversight. What do you think about that, Beth? Well, I, I do think that this industry needs to be regulated like the credit reporting industry is regulated. And, um, and of course, whenever there are bills like that, the, the lobbyists step in and, and do it. So far, they've been very effective in keeping this uh, mostly unregulated industry, except for specific applications like for example, employment screening. Right, and if and if these uh, companies like credit, um, like Choice Point, have credit reports, then they're covered by the Fair Credit Reporting Act. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah. Ju- but just overall, um, the collection of personal information is not um, is not regulated. It's not limited. It's just when you get down to a specific application. Right. Let's talk about, and this, I, I don't know very much about this. What about digital television and broadcast cable TV? What kind of privacy issues are with that? Well, um, when we, it, it's growing, especially cable, digital cable, uh, where you can order like a pay-per-view. Yes. And uh, also a two-way, um, two-way television. Uh, per, basically, right now, when you watch television, nobody really knows what you're watching. Right. Um, although the, the, your cable TV company would certainly know which um, uh, movies you're ordering? Yeah, premium, yeah. premium uh, channels that you order, and also if you order pay per view, they will know that. But it sure. doesn't tell them a whole lot. But it could be that someday we could be to the point where all of our watching is on demand, and that would then create a trail of data um, that uh, could be useful. Let's just say you're going through a, a nasty divorce or something. A, an enterprising divorce attorney might might want to get that data and show that you allowed. Um, you know, your rate, children to watch certain exactly, shows, right? Children to watch things that not, were not appropriate to them. So you know, eventually, all of these things will will leave a data trail. It's just like even when you grocery shop, you know, I get at Albertsons, it costs me so much more if I don't use my card, yeah. mm-hmm. and they don't have my social security number, but they know exactly what I buy. They and anybody, do. Yeah. We recommend, though, that for grocery store cards that you you actually, you, you don't really have to fill it out. I, I don't want to tell people to lie, but you don't have to, to give them your address. You don't even have to give them a proper name. I My card is, is I'm Ralph Shopper. Right, That's right. my name. <laughs> <laughs> well, hello, Ralph. Yes. And, and, and I know one, of my, one yeah. of my colleagues here is, is you know, Theodore the Giraffe. <laughs> so... <laughs> You can do things like that, and and uh, it, it. But still, you know, some some grocery stores won't let you do that. But uh, you know, why why should you have to play games like that? I don't exactly. think you should have to play games like that. Yeah, and I don't get any free coupons anyway. So what's the, what's the difference? Yeah. You know. Let's talk about the real ID act. How much time have we got, Lloyd? Because this I know is a biggie point right now. Seven minutes. Okay, so we have we have seven minutes that we can talk about yeah. that. Let's talk a little bit about the real ID act because I don't think people are really familiar with what's going on. No, they aren't, and it's it's actually a real big deal as far as I'm concerned. Um, yes, there is a bill that has passed um, a couple of years ago in Congress that would make all fifty states' driver's licenses uniform. Uh, in uh, the way they're put together, the data that's collected, uh, right down to the, the 
database of information that is compiled so that all of the information across the 50 states can be interconnected. Um, it, it, won't be, it won't be a huge database of all 50 states, but it will be a decentralized system that uh, would enable um, the data to be cross-referenced from one state to another. And many people think that's a really great idea. Um, because they, they'll point out that, say, the 9-11 terrorists, many of, uh, several of them had actually legitimate um, driver's licenses from the state of Virginia. Right. But, you know, it certainly it won't stop uh, terrorists and other bad guys from being able to obtain these. They'll always be able to pull together the um, identification documents like fake birth certificates to be able to get these um, uh you know, uh, legitimate licenses, but, but, you know, given to somebody who has no legitimate reason to have one. But anyway, the Real ID Act um, is opposed by civil liberties organizations and organizations like, uh, like ours because of the fact that it becomes essentially a national ID. And, you know, over, you know, over the, the centuries, we, we in this country collectively, I think, uh, feel good about the fact that we don't have a national ID. We are not a show-me-your-papers country. We're not We're, Nazis. That, that's right. And, and real ID, is, that, let's, let's call it what it is. It would become a national ID. And because of the fact that it's, it's, it's uh, made uniform across 50 states, it would be used even more and more. You know how much we, we probably all don't like the idea that when you return something to a store, they take your driver's license and swipe it and, and keep, you know, keep data on your returns. Well, those sorts of things will then happen more and more where um, a lot of companies will say, hey, this is a great way to keep data on individuals and let's swipe the mag stripes of those of those cards um, anyway it would be kind of the classic slip, slippery slope it starts off as a driver's license number and little by little it's used as more and more and more of a kind of a an all-purpose identification uh, system so um, we're there, there, there are movements afoot to either repeal the Real ID Act or at least modify it and make it less all-encompassing um, but the good I don't, news is that it's so expensive that a lot of the oh, states... Yeah. You know, actually, we could even just not talk about privacy. The expense, <laughs> I think the expense is, is enough of a reason to, uh, to have it repealed. Um, the states are saying, you know, this yeah. is going to kill us. Yep. California um, is saying between $500 million and a billion to implement Real ID, because what, what people have to do is, get this, you have to actually take your birth certificate down to the DMV, Ugh. and then they scan it. Get this, they scan it, and they keep it uh, in a database. Oh, great. Because it, it, one of the big things about Real ID is the source documentation. Right. Knowing that you're really you, and it requires the DMVs to get source documentation on everybody. Can you and, imagine the expense? Yes, and I'd better redact my, my mother and father's Social Security number, which is on my birth certificate. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, anyway, there's so many issues around it, but uh. it's, it's terribly expensive. I think they, they figure conservatively nationwide it would cost $11 billion, but um, it's really going to cost much more than that. And I hope that that's what is going to be the thing that drives it, because privacy might not be the thing that will drive it. No, probably not. It really, the cost is, will, will probably drive it. Lloyd says we have a few more minutes. I want to ask you, Beth, if I gave you a magic wand, mm -hmm. okay, and I said, okay, Beth, here you go, anything you want to happen with privacy, mm -hmm. what would you do? Well, let me first say that um, we're talking about informational privacy here. I'm not yes. talking about civil liberties type privacy. But okay. with informational privacy, to me, the magic wand is a concept called transparency, that we always know what's being done with our personal information. We can always access information about ourselves. And even most, more importantly, we have choice. We can say no to particular uses of information. I think if there were more transparency, there might be a social movement around privacy, people being so upset that they say, I'm, I'm going to put my foot down and I'm going to join with others and, and try to do something about that. There is no social movement around privacy. There are a few people like you and me and, you know, a dozen other organizations, but it's not a social movement. So I think transparency would help a lot. Yeah, and probably if we had a uh, leadership in government that really, really believed in privacy themselves, you know, mm -hmm. maybe we should put you up for president, Beth. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've been a leader and our pioneer, fearless leader. Well, Can't I'd we... rather, rather <laughs> just me be on a task force that, that puts together a set of guidelines, to be or honest vice with president. You. We could use you as vice president if you don't want to be president. <laughs> But no. anyway, transparency to me is the key word. And, well, we have like another minute, but what okay. would you do with your magic wand if you could do for civil liberties privacy? 
Lloyd says one minute. So. <laughs> oh, boy, that's a tough one, and I don't know if I'm going to come up with a very good answer. Um, but uh, I, I think that informational privacy and constitutional privacy overlap. I, I would definitely want a law, for example, that prohibits the use of facial recognition biometrics uh, to videotape, say, public uh, demonstrations. Right. Uh, so I think we need, you know, more protection more protection against the advancement of technology. I don't think we're going to get it, but um, I, I would certainly like to see more protection in law, maybe a, a comprehensive data privacy law like the European countries have, and like Canada has. Right, we're right, that's our neighbors. We are the only developed country in the world that does not have a comp- comprehensive privacy protection law. We are the laughing stock in terms of privacy uh, worldwide. Well, I hate to leave it on a, on a note like that, but Lloyd says we have to. Beth, thank you so much. I hope you will come back again. we got to get you at least every six months a Yo, year. thank you. And you're wonderful, and I will make sure that I mention your Privacy Rights Clearinghouse at privacyrights.org. Thank you, Beth. We'll talk to you later. Thank you very much. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. This is Privacy Piracy's host, Mari Frank. Please join us every Wednesday. Wednesday from 5 to 6 right here. And also visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy and see our previous guests, listen to their interviews, uh, go to our podcasts and subscribe to them and just come and write us an um, email and visit us each week. Thank you very much, Lloyd. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.